There's no mistaking that voice and saxophone combo. It can only be Curtis Steigers. He smoothly slid into the charts in 1992 with his debut song, I Wonder Why, and brought with him a great selection of waistcoats and a fabulous head of hair that set many hearts aflutter. But after three albums and a haircut, he had a change of musical direction. Here to talk about his life after that thing he did, including his new album, Please welcome Curtis Steigers. Curtis, hello, happy new year. And happy new year to you. Can we still say happy new year? I don't know, it feels so long ago now. Well, it, I mean, so far, whether it's a happy one or not is debatable, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm still saying it. Happy new year. How are you today where you live in Boise, Idaho? I, I'm very well, thank you. It's it's rather cold here. Uh, it's kind of a chilly, inverted day. The, the clouds are pushing down and it, it looks rather British out there, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, But I'm doing fine, doing just fine. I think you're joining me from your kitchen today, where you've been hosting your weekly online Songs From My Kitchen shows over the past year with your four dogs. Well, actually, today I had to go upstairs. I do spend a lot of time in the kitchen with my four dogs. But today, particularly because of the four dogs, <laughs> I decided to move upstairs to my office. Don't uh, take offense to that comment, but your covers look slightly kitcheny. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. They're very, they're very nice. I mean, I do keep some, uh, I do keep some china up here. No, um, no, this is, this is just the office upstairs. Uh, the, uh, the, the kitchen is much more spacious and there's, uh, and there are dogs usually making a lot of noise. And I thought I'd spare you that today. But but for my show, for Songs from My Kitchen, which I started during the pandemic because of, of the pandemic and, and the fact that I was not out on the road making a living and making music for people, I do it from there. That's That's where I lived for a year and a half, not making a living, but getting to play music with my dogs and make silly videos with my dogs. And uh, it's become a thing that I really look forward to every Wednesday. I love that you'll just be in the middle of performing a song with no clue that your dogs will just be chasing each other in the background or fighting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I can usually tell when they're about to get up to something. We have a we, we started the pandemic with three dogs, which is which is too many dogs to uh, to to begin anything with, let alone a pandemic. But in the middle of the pandemic, my wife was up in the middle of the night worrying about things. She runs a homeless shelter, and so she often is awakened by a phone call or a, a text or an email with some sort of an emergency, especially during the pandemic. And uh, so she was up in the middle of the night and couldn't get back to sleep, and so she was sort of surfing uh, through her emails and found one for a... Uh, a, a way basically it was an online auction for for one of the charities that she supports and one of one of the items was a, a dog and uh, and so she bid on it thinking she was just going to bid it up just to do a nice thing <laughs> for this charity that she supports she was the only bid and so we we ended the pandemic even though the pandemic isn't over or at least we we are now uh, still in a pandemic but we have four dogs and the puppy his name is Stanley he's a he's a bernie doodle he's a bernese mountain dog mixed with a you know a standard poodle so he's not small he's uh, he's not huge yet but he's 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 big and when he starts getting mischievous which is 90% of the time anything can happen and uh, so there's there there tend to be some some dust ups during a song uh, or two or during one of my stories and if i can't reach my foot far enough to give him a little 
kind, soft kick. Uh, uh, it, it just keeps on going uh, during the song. Uh, but uh, Can I ask you the controversial question yes. of where you stand on whether you should allow your dogs to sleep with you in your bed or not? <laughs> I, um, I don't stand necessarily in the same place that my wife stands on that. Uh, when, when we first moved in together, we, we, we only got married a few years ago. And when we first sort of combined our households, I had one very small dog who did in fact sleep with me, but she had several dogs and they were bigger and they slept with her. But once we got in together, I managed to get the dogs into the hallway to make a long story shorter. Um, they sleep out on some very plush beds in the hallway outside the bedroom door. They come in for a little cuddle before sleep and we, you know, we spend, you know, 15, 20 minutes just to get giving that family feeling. And then we get them the hell out. <laughs> but if Jodie had her way, they'd be in the bed all the time, would they? Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a. Although I think once once we moved them into the hall, she realized she was getting a lot more sleep, and she was she had a lot more real estate uh, there to sleep on, and so I think she's she's begrudgingly uh, learned to appreciate it. <laughs> okay, so you may or may not know this, but it is exactly thirty years ago today that I wonder why your debut single first entered the UK charts. Hey. So thank you so much for spending this anniversary with us. <laughs> uh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's a, uh, it, it has been a fun year. I mean, the reason I made this new album, uh, This Life, is because it is the 30th anniversary of my first album. I, I have been thinking about this for, well, for, for more than just this year. I, I've been thinking about it for about six or seven years because the first time I thought about it was when... 25 came around when the 25th anniversary came around, but I was busy doing other stuff. I just, I wasn't ready to look back yet. I was still making new records and, you know, new records with songs that I hadn't recorded yet. But this time around, I decided after 30 years of being in the music business, in the record business, that I could take a look back. It's very fitting that we're reminiscing then. So without further ado, let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. For a guy who was told in the fourth grade he couldn't sing and shouldn't ever sing, you ended up doing pretty okay. Yeah, where's Mrs. Holsinger now, huh? <laughs> I auditioned for the Kiwanis Boys Choir because I really liked the little red sort of uh, waistcoat jumpers that they had, or as we call them, little red sweater vests. And, uh, and, and I liked to sing. I sang in the car with my mom. I, I knew how to harmonize when I was very young. And I, I went in for an audition and she told me, I, Mrs. Holsinger told me I couldn't sing. And uh, so I picked up the clarinet instead and, and played in bands. But yeah, I've, I've, managed to, uh, I've managed to prove her wrong, haven't I? <laughs> so you spent quite a few years plugging away, doing gigs in jazz clubs and writing songs before you got your first record deal. So when I Wonder Why was released, what was it like to hear it on the radio for the first time and then end up on chat shows like Jay Leno within a few months? Those were amazing, heady days for me. I mean, uh, I, I I had just uh, sort of completed a uh, a run doing a you know doing a Sunday night gig at at a restaurant in New York City and riding the subway to work and and uh, eating pizza to survive and suddenly I had a a song on the charts and I was meeting my heroes opening for Elton John and Eric Clapton and James Brown and Prince it was uh, 
an absolute riot. I had such a good time. I really appreciated every moment of it. And, uh, and I, you know, I got to eat other food besides pizza and I, and I had my first proper pint in, in, uh, in London. So life, life was, was very good. And so that, that first time you heard your song on the radio, was that like a, this is my song on the radio? It was astounding. Actually, I was, uh, I was out on the road in the United States in a car with, a, with a, a, an old-time radio promo guy called Johnny Powell. Johnny Powell was from Baltimore, and he had a cool Baltimore accent that I can't even do for you. It was just, it was so, it was something I'd never heard before. And we were in his car driving through Pennsylvania, and we drove across the, I think the Allegheny River or the, no, the Susquehanna River. And as we drove across that river, the radio station that we had just uh, been visiting put on my record. And it was the first time I'd heard it on, on air. And oh, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. My, my head exploded. I mean, we, I, we literally pulled over and the, and the two of us just hugged and yelled. It was really great. It was uh, wonderful. And, but still, I mean, to this day, when I hear one of my songs play, you know, you know, in a Marks and Spencer or, uh, you know, in, in a, in a Target store, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled. It's, it's so exciting to hear something that I've created, uh, you know, somewhere outside of my head, somewhere outside of my car or my home. And of course, you played the saxophone on the track, and I, I wonder why. And I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I've always thought there's like a fine line between sexy saxophone and sleazy porn film saxophone. <laughs> Careless Whisper is a bit closer to sleazy porn film saxophone for me. But, I, and I, <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't know. I don't, you know, I've never seen any sleazy porn. Now, have I? <laughs> Uh, at the time, I don't remember there being any singers in the charts that played the sax. Did you push for that, or was that something that just happened? Um, you know, I I played clarinet and then saxophone as a kid, uh, and I just never stopped playing it. It was always it was my instrument. Like you know, Eric Clapton holds a guitar, Elton John sits at a piano. It was just that was what I did. And when I started singing, the, you know, I just would sort of let the sax hang around my neck while I sang. And um, it is, I mean, I consider myself a singer who plays sax. I'm definitely a much better singer than I am a saxophone player. But uh, it hasn't been a bad thing, you know, having that niche. There aren't too many uh, in the history of pop music. I mean, certainly there have been singers who played a little bit of sax, like David Bowie, Van Morrison, but there were only a few that were really known as a singer saxophone player. And, uh, but why not have a, a gimmick? You know, it, it worked for me. I must say it, it makes life a little bit harder because I have to drag it around with me everywhere I go. And, uh, on, I wonder why I played the alto saxophone, but normally I'm more of a tenor saxophone player. So when I play it now, I, d I don't play it with the alto. I play it, you know, I, I do an entirely different version of it and I play tenor saxophone. Uh, but, um, I, I try, I try not to go for sleazy. I try to go for tasteful. Sexy saxophone. <laughs> I try to stay away from the porn as much as I can. Let's talk fashion for a second, because you were a big wearer of waistcoats or, or vests, as you call them in the States. Sure. Did someone style you or did you already have like a big collection in your wardrobe? I um I never was really styled. No, no one. I mean, certainly for videos and things, they would they would have a stylist come in and they'd bring a bunch of clothes, which was great. I loved that. And I, you know, for photo sessions and things, occasionally I'd see I'd wear something that I'd say, "Hey, could I 
could I buy this? And, you know, I mean, I love clothes. I really do. I especially, um, I mean, back then I really was into waistcoats. The reason I got into waistcoats is because when I started playing gigs for my first record, I was wearing suit jackets. That was kind of the thing then to wear a pair of jeans and a suit jacket with a t-shirt. And, you know, often they would have shoulder pads because it was the early nineties and that's what one did. <laughs> but, uh, I realized that wearing a, a suit jacket when you're dancing around stage and jumping off the drum platform, you sweat a lot. It's hot. And so I, I took off the jackets and started wearing the waistcoats because it was just cooler. Um, after that, I, st I started just wearing the waistcoats with nothing underneath, no t-shirt, just a, a waistcoat, which I, I'm happy that I was able to do that when I was a young man. It's not something I would do now. It would, it would not look nearly as good as it, as it did. Looking back on it now, it's a, it's a touch embarrassing to see myself, you know, in a, in a, uh, in a, in a fake leather uh, uh, waistcoat, a fake leather vest dancing around a stage with all that hair. I mean, Again, you know, it's nice to look young and I appreciate that part of it, but it's like, oh God, kid, put some clothes on. <laughs> you mentioned the hair, um, which contributed to you being somewhat a sex symbol at the time. Uh, and I have to say, you had a pretty damn good head of hair. I mean, I've got long hair, but I'm envious looking at yours from back then. It looks like it was very high maintenance, maybe. I don't know. It was in such good condition. Well I, I have always had, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to say I've always had a lot of hair. It's just, it's, it, it's hanging in there. It's still there. It's, it's quite white and gray, um, nowadays, but back then, you know, it, it's always been thick. Um, that made it difficult. I mean, I only had long hair for about four years. It was, I'd moved to, I had moved to New York city when I was, uh, 21 or so. And I couldn't really afford to get a good haircut anymore. And so I just kind of let it grow. And then it got bushier and longer. And I thought, well, I'll keep going. You know, you experiment with those kind of things, uh, especially when you're, you know, when you're young. And and suddenly I had long hair. That was fine. I was playing gigs. I got a record deal. They took that photo. And that photo is something I will never live down. That photo of me on the cover of my first album with orange skin, because they had this sort of yellow or yellow skin, because they had this yellowish light, which was cool back then, I guess. And my hair looked a little bit lighter because of that yellowish light. And so people still say, oh, why aren't you blonde anymore? I was never blonde. It was it was lights, for God's sake. Come on. Um, and, and as soon as I got off of the road, um, at the end of 92, I, I came off of the road uh, having toured for a year and a half behind my first album. And in early 93, I chopped off all my hair. I just, it was, it drove me crazy. It was such a pain, especially after a gig. You know, I'd come off stage, I'd be soaking wet get on a tour bus and I'd have to spend 15 minutes blow drying my hair just so that I wouldn't catch cold, you know, so I wouldn't get sick uh, sitting on a bus with air conditioning. So uh, um, it was, it was so nice to cut it off. Uh, and people still say, where's your hair? And I say, oh, I have no idea. It was 30 years ago. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> But also, you know, the first time someone said, oh, he's, you know, he's Michael Bolton Jr., I, I thought, oh, God, I got to get, I got to cut my hair as soon as possible. And I just, uh, I just was, uh, I, I didn't want to be compared to anyone else. And, and then to have someone compare me to somebody just because of my hair, that, that made me crazy. Was it kind of, I guess, a, almost like a blessing and a curse, your hair? Because on the one hand, it's part of your image, you know, to start off with, but on the other, this must have been this time where you feel like you can't cut it because people identify you with it. I'm kind of thinking like Jennifer Aniston in Friends with her Rachel haircut and then everything became about her hair. Yeah. Well, it certainly, it certainly got talked about a lot. I have to say that was 
again, one of the reasons that I cut it off because I just didn't, I didn't want it to be about how I looked. I never, it was never about an image or a, you know, I, I, I never really set out to be that, you know, a sex symbol or a, or, or, you know, a, a fashion plate or whatever, or somebody with long hair. I just, that's just how I looked. And, you know, I, I put it together well enough to where, you know, I looked better than the people in the audience. That was the idea. Someone, someone told me when I was young, I, I heard someone say, uh, you know, here's a, here's a, a, a good rule for show business. Always look at least a little better than the people in the audience. So, you know, you dress up a little bit more. Um, but at, at a certain point it was time to let it go. And, uh, um, you know, Maybe that was the only reason I was famous was because of my hair, but uh, I, Aww. I don't think I don't think so. I think uh, you know I, I made some choices when I cut my hair to continue to evolve and to change as a musician. I've always tried to learn new things. Every year, I try to make a record that sounds different than the last one. Mm. And uh, um, I guess in that regard, cutting my hair was a, was a, a step in changing, but I never thought like, Oh, I'm going to reinvent myself. Like Madonna does. She, she basically changes her clothes and suddenly she's reinvented herself. And it's like, well, no, you still sound like, <laughs> you still sound like Madonna. You just changed your clothes. <laughs> you were in the somewhat unusual position of having a higher profile and more success here in the UK and in Europe compared to the US. And that's something that continues to this day. Indeed. I think your first album went triple platinum here compared to gold back home in the States. Yeah. What was your reaction to that at the time? Well, at the time, it seemed really big everywhere. You know, mm. I was on all the big TV shows in the United States that first year or two, 91, 92, 93. I did have a high profile in the States, but it didn't continue the way that it did in, in England and Germany. I mean, I sold the same amount of records and I got a lot of attention on both sides of the Atlantic, but it because it was you know because the population is smaller in in Germany and in UK than than the United States it just it just led to me hanging on to that profile longer um i i went i continue to go where they pay me you know i i, I certainly play in the United States and i i continue to try to build my profile and 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 play bigger and bigger places but i can i can fly to to london and and do a tour of of uk theaters and i can go to germany and play big festivals and denmark and here for the most part i play you know jazz clubs and that's perfectly fine i mean imagine my choice i can either i can either go to london and have an incredible pint and a curry and and then off to Paris for, for, you know, some escargot and some champagne and then to Denmark to see the sun stay up all night and, you know, and go to Moscow, or I can go to Peoria, Illinois and eat at a, an olive garden on an inner, on the side of an interstate. <laughs> it's a, so glamorous. Yeah. I, I tell you, I love having a career in Europe. It's a, it's like basically vacationing for, for a living. And, you know, at the end of every, at the end of every day, I, I get up on stage and sing songs for people that know my music and, and paid uh, their, their hard earned money to see me. I'm, I'm so lucky. It's sort of a, a rite of passage for musical acts to appear on top of the pops here in England. And you performed quite a few times on it. Um, and for us as viewers, it's it's a great half hour of watching top music acts. But for the acts, it was this great day of being with other stars that they'd never usually get to be around. So what, what were your memories of being on it? Oh, it was 
It was surreal. Top of the Pops was so much fun. It was so weird and so wonderful. Uh, you spent the whole day there. You had to you had to stay there the whole day, and you had to rehearse, and you had to rehearse and go through the the the, the order of things before you did the show. So you were there all day long. Therefore, you're hanging out with Cher and Kylie Minogue and Public Enemy and Right Said Fred and I mean it's the the number of people. I mean I remember sitting in a sitting in the makeup room and Marty Pello was a couple of uh, seats down from me from uh, what he was in what band uh, Marty Pello wet, wet, wet. And from Wet 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 yeah so they were doing one of their songs and in walks Phil Collins and and uh, Mike Rutherford from Genesis and I mean my head exploded it was just like this is the greatest thing and so weird. Uh, Moby Grape was on once, you know, and there was definitely, I smelled something burning in the hallway. I don't know what that was, but uh, um, <laughs> it, uh, it, it was really great. One time, uh, they, they also, they had a pub at, at the at the studios. It was a famous studio. They I did, think, at Elstree, yeah. The BBC Club. At Elstree, right. It was where they did, was it where they did East? EastEnders, yeah. They did the EastEnders there. So someone walked me out. The first time I was there, they said, do you want to see something amazing? And they walked me into this street and it was the EastEnders set. However, I had no idea what EastEnders was because I'd, it was my first time in England. I'd never, I didn't, I didn't know what EastEnders was. So I was like, yeah, that's cool. What is this? <laughs> and I was supposed to recognize it, but they had their own pub there with with snooker tables, and uh, um, I, I really had a great time. And uh, I, I, I met some really nice people, so, saw some strange things. I mean, one day we waited for Cher to show up for like three hours, and we kept we kept running the show, and they get to Cher's segment, and Cher wouldn't be there on the stage, and they'd have to stop. And I thought. Why didn't you just check her dressing room to see if she was there before you started the show? And they'd say, "Oh no, she's still at her hotel. We need to wait." And, and oh my god, it was just the the funniest thing. And then when she finally got there, she was share for God's sake. I mean, of course she's going to be a little late. She's share. Fun fact: I once had a, a conversation with Marty Pello in that pub, in the in the, the oh, BBC really? bar. Yeah, we we had a discussion about who was wearing the tighter trousers, me or him, and we <laughs> determined that it was him. It was him, yeah. Well, it was. It's written into his job description to be wearing tight trousers. And, uh, oh, that's great. I I, I once tortured. Um, um, what? Oh God, I, his name just flew out of my head. Uh, the the singer from uh, Jarvis Cocker. Mm. I once cornered Jarvis Co Cocker at the bar um, at Top of the Pops, and just I just started chatting him up. I just I just I, hey, I love that song, and you know where you where do you where do you live? Where do you, and he just kind of looked at me like. Why are you talking to me? <laughs> um, but I mean, he he didn't say that. He wasn't rude. But I could. I just got the feeling that he was just sort of. He 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 didn't expect that I would come up and chat him up and and like his music. And uh, um, anyway, I, I that's that's why I do this. I, I I'm a fan first. I, I was a. a a fan of music from the time I, I could afford uh, the $2.50 to buy an album uh, when I was eight or nine years old. And so getting to meet people that do what I do, especially my heroes, is just is, is a wonderful byproduct of, of, of being a recording artist. I can imagine you must have had some crazy times, but tell me about the day when you sang the national anthem at a baseball game and then played saxophone with Spinal Tap. <laughs> that was a really good day. It was, you know, sort of in my in in my momentary heyday as a pop sensation here in the United States. I I'd, the night before I had presented an award, an award at the American Music Awards 
and uh, then sort of wandered around backstage and met a lot of really amazing people. I met I met Willie Nelson and Chet Atkins, and I met uh, I, I just it was it was fabulous. Just all these famous people backstage, and I came upon uh, uh, n- not Nigel Tufnell. Um, well, I came upon two members of Spinal Tap, portrayed by Harry Shearer, who played bass. Um, uh, Derek Smalls was his character, and then uh, um, oh, it's, oh, and David Saint Hubbins, who was portrayed by Michael McKean. Both of whom are wonderful uh, comic actors that I knew from other other roles. But I walked up to them and I said, "Oh my God, you guys are here, it's Spinal Tap!" And they were in character, fully in character. They were all they they wouldn't come out of character. They only spoke to me as David St. Hubbins and uh, Derek Smalls. And it was, it was fabulous. I chatted with them for a while. Um, we had a laugh and that was it. The next day I went to the airport. I got on a plane in, in LA and I, I was, I, for, for, for once and, you know, every now and again, I'd end up in first class. I'm sitting in first class and who am I seated with? But Spinal Tap, uh, those two, plus uh, Christopher Guest, who was Ni- uh, Nigel Tufnell. Uh, and uh they said, you're going to Seattle? Well, you should play with us tonight. So not only did I get to sing the national anthem at a, at a Seattle Mariners game uh, and meet Ken Griffey Jr. on, on, on the field, uh, but I then went went to a theater and played, uh, I think I played on Break Like the Wind. I played saxophone solo on Break Like the Wind. And I was actually late getting on stage, which was very spinal tap. There was a, there was a, I accidentally, you know, I had gone out to make a call uh, and, and came back in and they were like, Curtis, you're on. So I ran up the stairs, got my saxophone, ran back downstairs, ran on stage in the middle of the song, just in time to play my sax. And I thought that was just, that was quite spinal tap to show up late. Uh, it just, it, it worked well, I thought, but uh, I still have, uh, you know, I still know Harry and, and Michael there. Um, I've, I've been to, I've been to Harry Shearer's house for a, for a sing-along night where I got to, I got to sing songs with Eric Idle. And uh, I presume you turned it up to 11. <laughs> I did. It was 11, maybe even 11 and a half. Okay, it's time to leave the nostalgia zone and enter what I like to call the latter zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. You've done so much since the release of your first album. We're now like 12, 13 albums down the line. Um, And I think every music artist I've spoken to on the podcast has ended up talking about this in one way or another. And it's always seemed to bring about a change in their career, whether that's them not making music anymore or their band splitting up or a change in musical direction. So for you, when was the first time you realised the music business was a business and you were a product? You know, I learned I learned that very early. Uh, I, I I had a fun year of touring my first album and and then I set a set out to make my second album. And, uh, what I figured out is that even though I wanted to continue to grow and experiment with my songwriting and, and push toward being a more sort of organic sounding artist, a a rougher around the edges, a little, a bit, a little less uh, slick and polished than I was on my first album, 
the record company wasn't interested in that at all. They did not love me for my art. They loved me uh, because they thought they could have hits. And uh, I, I, I battled for three and a half years with the president of Arista Records, a guy called Clive Davis, who is a legendary uh, record business president. And I'm sure he had his point. I'm sure his ideas were sound. However, they did not align with my ideas as, as to how I should sound as an artist. And so... I, I sort of dismantled my pop career in order to make records that I wanted to make. I, uh, I realized that I didn't really want to spend two years making it, writing and making an album, and then put it out and have it be judged not a success because it didn't get on the radio in the first two weeks. And that's, that's kind of how the pop business is. If you don't, if you don't get on all the radio stations right away, for the most part, you're just going to be, they're going to say, all right, go make another record. And I wanted to tour. I wanted to play music for people. I wanted to, I wanted the songs that I had recorded to evolve into something new. And so I, I realized at a certain point I needed to step away. I made one more pop record. I made a third pop record in 1999 for another album, for another label. I, I moved from Arista Records to Columbia. And I finally got to make the sort of singer-songwritery record that I wanted to make. It's an album called Brighter Days. And I'm pretty sure that about eight people plus my mother bought it. That was, uh, it was, uh, it wasn't quite, uh, quite a commercial success. And after that, I decided it was, it was time to make a big change. I had grown up studying and playing jazz music. I went to college, uh, you know, to get a degree in music. I didn't end up getting the degree, by the way. I dropped out, but uh, but I went uh, on a jazz scholarship, and so I'm imagining Whiplash now, the film Whiplash. <laughs> no, it's nothing like that. Whiplash, in my humble opinion, is the biggest pile of 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 cow dung ever it's oh, uh, any musician you almost any musician you talk to will say if you're bleeding when you're playing the drums you're doing it wrong um you know certainly there are some there there are some professors who are are jerks but i mean th that was ridiculous music is about art music is about making beautiful music and you know certainly you're going to be pushed and you're going to be um you know maybe ridden a little bit by a by a professor but they're not going to torture you like that that is that is just the silliest thing um anyway no it was more like you know, I didn't pay attention enough. I was a really good singer and a good saxophone player for my age. Uh, I sort of shined above most of the other students, and therefore, I thought, well, I could just, I can just skate a little bit. I don't have to, I don't have to study my music theory uh, for my music theory tests. And you know, I started getting bad grades, and they said, well, we're going to take your scholarship back. And if I had said, look, I'll work harder, I'll buckle down, they may have let me stay and and kept uh, kept me around with my scholarship. But instead, I just said, yeah. I got this. And I left and I did it the hard way. I played in clubs and things like that. But uh, anyway, I, 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 around the turn of the century, after Brighter Days, around the year 2000, uh, I decided I'm going to make jazz records. And I signed a, a deal with a small little boutique jazz label called Concord Records. And I started making jazz records. Uh, 
the first record had a lot of standards on it. I wanted to basically impress upon the jazz world that I was, in fact, a jazz musician, not just some some guy, you know, coming over to do his Rod Stewart moment where he came over and did a standards record and then went back. I really had every intention of making jazz records, so I did that. But I also put an Elvis Costello song on that jazz record and uh, a Randy Newman song. My second record, I threw in another Randy Newman song and a, and a Ron Sexsmith song. And over the years, I found a niche for myself in the jazz world, recording songs that other jazz singers don't even know about, recording songs by singer-songwriters that that most jazz singers haven't even heard of. And I've recorded songs by Nick Lowe and uh, Ray Davies and Lennon McCartney and uh, Hayes Carl and even country songwriters like Willie Nelson and, and Merle Haggard. I I found a way to combine all the things that I love about music, many different styles. I love country music. I love rock and roll. I love the blues. I love soul music. But I'm a jazz singer now, and so I take those song, those types of things and I take them apart and I put them back together and make records that sound like me. And they have jazz and they have pop and they have soul and they have folk music and they, you know, they're somewhere in the nether region between those styles. Um, I'm also somewhere in the nether region between making money and making money. <laughs> I, I, you know, they not not that many people buy my records because they're, you know, they're weird. They're different than than my first pop records. But I don't think that I would still be making a living uh, if I just kept playing the same type of pop music because pop music has evolved so much since, you know, since I was 25 years old. I'm now I'm 56 years old. It's a it's a different world and uh, so I make records that I love. And then hopefully some of the people that bought my first record and a lot of people that have discovered me since then will continue to uh, give me the benefit of the doubt and follow me down these new paths. How did you handle that transition coming from a pop career, you know, going down a jazz route? Because as a genre, jazz doesn't have much commercial radio airplay unless it's a jazz station you're listening to so there's less awareness and the album market is more geared to popular music in inverted commas mm -hmm. is that a hard adjustment well the adjustment that i made was that i became i started make a making a living entirely from tickets from ticket sales from from touring which mm -hmm. was really what i wanted to do anyway that's what i grew up dreaming of i mean i the album or the, the the big poster of elton john on my wall when i was a kid it wasn't of him sitting in a studio making a record it was him on stage it was him playing for you know thousands of people uh, so th that's what i thought being a musician was once i made that pop record that first pop record I was spending a lot of time sitting at home waiting for the next tour to happen as opposed to just playing. So I actually do what I want to do now. I make a living playing live and I do sell some records, uh, but really I, I pay my mortgage. I pay for my daughter's college through ticket sales, through going out there and making music for people. So the transition actually was exactly the transition I needed as a human being. It also, it turns out, was a pretty smart idea because the record business was starting to crumble at that point. Uh, you know, there aren't too many people in the pop world that make much money selling records anymore because of the fact that CDs are gone and- Streaming. Digital, yeah, streaming is the thing. And 
so far, it's really hard to make a living from streaming because uh, the laws haven't changed enough uh, to favor the artists who actually make the music. The the people in the offices and the, the millionaires are making our money <laughs> and keeping it. Eventually, the laws will change and uh, there will be some sort of uh, justice and, and equity. But uh, for now, if you don't tour it's pretty hard to make a living in the in the in the music business so in a way accidentally i'm i was a genius <laughs> for the first time maybe the only time in my whole life i was a business i was a business expert i made a good choice and i i decided that it was touring that i wanted to do and that was how i was going to make a living and and it's it's been great it's it's a lovely way to make a living People may remember in 2006, you participated in a BBC celebrity singing competition, just the two of us, which saw actual singers teamed up with celebrities who were not so much blessed with the singing gene. And you were paired with presenter Penny Smith, who I think is fair to say didn't have the best voice, but you still finished fourth. <laughs> we did. I think we could have even done better had we not gotten bored with the show. We um, At a certain point, uh, uh, Penny was, as you mentioned, not she's not a great singer. She's a, she's an incredibly funny woman. She's beautiful. She's smart as hell. She, we, we really, we did what we could on that show with, with her not having a voice. We went for the comedy and she, she, I, I sort of saw her as the loose, my Lucille ball. She was like, she was just all about funny voices. I mean, at times she sounded like Marge Simpson singing songs, you know, she's Oh God. It was it was it was really frustrating at first for me, not because of Penny, but because the producers were so intent on making us cry. They just wanted those moments, you know, those those uh, uh, reality TV moments where we cried and we really cared. And Penny and I couldn't have given a toss, as she would say. We did not care about that show at all. We cared about having fun and getting a drink as early in the day as we could. And um, and the, it drove the producers crazy that we we kept getting voted on. We kept the the people loved Penny. They loved that she was so bad and yet so funny. And I would just you know I'd sing well. I'd sing like me. And then at the end of it, the judges would say tell her how terrible she was, and I'd stand up for her and say how dare you, Lulu? Lulu, you can't say that about my penny. And people <laughs> loved that. It was really fun. And I, I, I tell you, we could have, I don't think we could have won it, but we may have come in second or third had Penny not had a birthday party to go to. She had she had to go to her sister's birthday party the next night. And this was all filmed on subsequent nights. I mean, just night after night after night or filmed. I mean, it went out live. It was it was a very quick uh, series. And, um, and she said, you know, I, I'm really feeling, I'm worried about this. I have to go to my sister's birthday tomorrow. And I said, well, don't be funny tonight and we won't win. If you're not funny, if you just try to sing this tonight, you're going to try to sing well, Penny. Go out there. And and she went out there and she was terrible and she wasn't funny. And that was it. They voted us off and she was free to go to her sister's birthday party. I got to come back and be on every subsequent night because I still hadn't done my celebrity duet with so-and-so. And so I ended up getting all the all the benefits of being on a TV show and she got to go to her sister's birthday party and, and it all worked out fine. And the best part of it all, besides selling a lot of tickets after that, because people noticed me again after thinking I was dead or something, <laughs> that I got on TV for a couple of weeks and <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's not a Curtis 
Tigers is not dead. Let's go see him. So they came out to see my shows. But the really great part of it was I'm I'm still very good friends with Penny. Uh, uh, she and her partner and I go out and have a drink and dinner every, almost every time I come to London. They're, they've they've really become great friends. And Penny and my daughter, Ruby, are, are close friends. It's, it's really, when you get to become friends with somebody in a situation like that, where you're just, you're barely hanging on to your sanity. It's, it's amazing what, what a good uh, relationship you can create. <laughs> uh, and then a couple of years after that, you were approached to write the theme tune for the TV show Sons of Anarchy, which you also sang and got an Emmy nomination for. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and if you look at your Spotify page, This Life has the most plays out of all the songs in your catalogue. So did you notice a new audience coming to you after that, or maybe an increase in bikers at your gigs? <laughs> well, the funny thing about Sons of Anarchy, whoops, can you hear my dogs barking right now? There, That's that's fine. Yeah, Let that's go. No, it's good. They're, this is my life. Just know that that is my life. When the mailman comes, this house gets loud. So just, uh... hey, Louie, at least go downstairs and yell at him. <laughs> he comes every day. It's the same guy. It's like he comes every single day. He wears the same clothes, guys. It's the same mailman. Um, with with Sons of Anarchy, I have noticed that my fan base has grown. It was a really great opportunity for me to be involved in that. I not only co-wrote the song, but I ended up singing it. I thought I was just, you know, being being asked to write lyrics for it. My friend Bob Thiel Jr., who I'd written a lot of songs with, he called me and said, I'm the I'm the music supervisor on this new show, Curtis. Will you write lyrics for the theme song? And uh, so I write I wrote some lyrics and I sent them a demo and they loved it and said, that's it. That's the one. So uh, they, they used that. Um, the funny thing about the show is it's a brutal show about brutal people who, who do a lot of murdering and, and beating people up. But the fans are from all walks of life. I mean, I, it, you'd be amazed at how many like school teachers have come up and said, Oh, I just love that show. Sons of Anarchy. It's so great. And it's like, but you're a nice little school marm. Uh, so, I mean, I had to tune out after the first season because the- Too much for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was really, it's a rough show. I, I have to go back and watch it now after I've, I've grown up a little bit. <laughs> I've got enough time uh, time and space between me and it. But no, it was, it was really a great opportunity. And that song keeps on giving. And I have, on this new album, I've recorded, I've re-recorded the theme song the way we do it live with my jazz group. So it's, uh, it, I, I, I intend to continue to flog that horse. On the life side of things, as opposed to the music, um, about 10 years ago, you connected with your biological father for the first time. Mm. I think that's a really interesting story. Would you mind sharing how that came about? Well, yeah, you've done your homework. Yeah, I, I, when I was a kid, I, I thought that my stepfather was my father. And then sort of at the end of high school, well after the divorce from the stepfather, my mother finally told me that my my real dad was this other guy, uh, Dennis, someone that she had dated in, in college. And he'd gone off to uh, Vietnam and died in Vietnam. And so from about 17 years old, I I thought, okay, so... I mean, it, it was a big change in my life to think that someone else was my dad, but it, 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 it was, it was reality and I was fine with it. And Dennis was gone, dead and gone. Um, however, as years went by, I, 
I learned some things. It's a really long story. We would have to drink at least a bottle, maybe two bottles of wine to get through the whole story. Um, it's a it's it's a fascinating story. But I did, in fact, finally find my birth father, and he did not die in Vietnam. He didn't even go to Vietnam. He was drafted, but he ended up going to Washington D.C. And um, uh, it, it it's it's a really complicated story. But in the long run. I have a dad. I have a, a father uh, who I really like. We're 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 good friends, and uh, I, I he comes occasionally. He and his wife uh, come uh, on tour. They they come out and see shows in England. We've I've had a pint with my dad in London. It's a um, and so it's it's a it's a really interesting thing. It, it it changed my life, and it changed my daughter's life as well. She has a grandpa that she didn't know about. And another big part of your life for the past 15, 16 years has been fundraising for the Interfaith Sanctuary Homeless Shelter where you live in Boise. Why is that so important to you? Oh, yeah, you mentioned your wife works for it, but... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well, that... um, But when I I first started... raising funds for interfaith sanctuary and we do a, a every every december we do a variety show at, at, at the biggest theater in town and i get 20 acts together made up of my friends who are musicians professional musicians around town and and school groups and dance companies and things they come out they all donate their time and they all do one song or one performance and we've raised over two million dollars for this shelter over the years um wow. The person that I have produced this show with, co-produced this show with, uh, Jody Peterson, is now Jody Peterson Steigers. We both, over the years, we've, we've known each other for years. We were dear friends and worked hard on this thing. And then over a, a few years, both of our marriages, long-time marriages, uh, ended, sadly. And I, you know, I was heartbroken and she was heartbroken. And we were friends. We worked. And then... After after my marriage was over and the divorce, the dust had settled from the divorce, I looked at Jody and I thought, "Hey, you're good looking, <laughs> and, and and I really I know you. I you're you're one of my best friends, and and I wonder what that would be like, you know. And we now are married. We've been married for a few years, and we continue to uh, we continue to raise funds for the shelter. She at the time. In the beginning, she was just helping to raise money. She wasn't directly involved with the shelter. But over the years, she's fallen in love with the cause. And she's fallen in love with the the guests, with the people that she was helping to take care of. And now she is the executive director of the shelter. Uh, and I'm, I'm very proud of her for that. She works tirelessly it's a it's a it's a brutal job and and a heartbreaking job especially during the pandemic i mean she and her staff helped to keep the homeless population from getting sick during the pandemic there never was a big outbreak of covid in in the in the homeless community in boise idaho because in large part because of her struggle to get everyone vaccinated early uh, our homeless population here in boise were vaccinated earliest, you know, ahead of anybody else. And, and it was in, in no small part due to my wife. So anyway, it's a, it's a great cause. Uh, uh, interfaithsanctuary.org is the place to, to learn about it. And if you, if you feel like throwing a few dollars their way, it's a, it's, it's a wonderful uh, charity. Well done to her. Um, let's talk about 
now because your new album also called this life is out next month on the 22nd of february and it's sort of a greatest hits but not as we know it because you've taken some of your best songs and given them a jazz spin yeah it's definitely a look back the uh, this life is a look back at this life i've had in the record business and the music business nine of the 11 songs are songs that i've recorded before most of them being my own songs uh I Wonder Why, the first single, uh, You're All That Matters to Me, the second single from my first album, uh, Never Saw a Miracle, another single from my first album, and then several songs from subsequent albums uh, that I I do differently now. I play, I tour with a jazz quintet or as a jazz quintet. And uh, back then when I made those records, they were big early 90s bombastic pop songs and they sound entirely different now and people really like my fans like the way they sound now and have been pestering me to record them uh the new way and this seemed like the perfect opportunity the 30th anniversary of my first album to go back and re-record some of these things the way we play them live which was very easy for us because all we had to do was go into the studio and play what we do almost every night we i have i have not played a gig without playing i wonder why in 30 years and so that my band and I being able to just go in and play our live version, it was really easy. It sounds entirely different than that first uh, that first recording, than that first single. But at the same time, it's still got the same bones. It's still the same song. You'll still be able to sing along with it. But it's a it's a new approach. I also re-recorded the Sons of Anarchy theme because that's one that sounds totally different. I mean, the Sons of Anarchy theme on record is a blues rock, you know. It's it's like a bomb dropping. It's so you know it's so rocking, and uh, we do it in a more you know sensitive manner <laughs> these days. And then I took a a couple of songs that I haven't recorded before, but have been important to me. One song, a Leonard Cohen song that I uh, that I just love, and we we just picked up. We just started doing it on the road some years back, and we do it, but we haven't gotten around to recording it. So I thought this would be a good chance. And then we recorded "Summertime," an old standard by the Gershwin Brothers. And the arrangement of that I've been doing since well before I made my first record. It was a, an arrangement from a college group that I played with called the Young Jazz Lions. And we, had, we, made, this, we made up this little uh, reggae jazz version of Summertime. And, and I thought that, that made a lot of sense to, to look back even, even further than my first record. And if you get the LP, you get a special Bob Dylan song as well. Indeed, yes. You get to hear uh, uh, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right by Bob Dylan, which is a song I recorded on one of my jazz records, but with different in- instrumentation than we do it live. So uh, it, 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 uh, that was another one that just seemed, seemed like it needed another, just wanted another chance. It needed another, uh, another look to see, see what it might sound like on record. I don't know what I'd do Baby, without you, your road that mattered to me The ground that you walk, the air that you breathe Someday you'll discover I don't want no other Believe me, your road that matters, baby All that matters to me
just had a taste there of your new album, but people can see you in person very soon as you're on tour starting next month with a mini residency at Ronnie Scott's here in London and then around the UK until April and then supporting Barry Manilow as well on tour. I have a long history with Barry Manilow. My mum was a big Barry fan. Uh, I've been playing the piano since I was five. She bought me his musical score book for like nice, his greatest hits album. Nice. And I was forced to play it from, I think, about seven years old. You could do worse. I was playing a lot of Mandy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. Oh, I go way back with Barry. I mean, I remember when that first single came out. Mandy happened to be the first single ever released by Arista Records, which was my first... Uh, record label so barry was barry basically was arista he made arista records with his big hits and years later when i got on the label i i met barry manilow because of the label and just because of our connection that way and he was always very kind and and very uh supportive and complimentary about my music when i started making jazz records Barry started saying nice things about me in the press. He would go out on his big, massive arena tours and they'd say, what have you been listening to? And he'd say, I love that Curtis Steigers. I love the way he makes jazz records. And and so um, I reached out to him just to say thank you and say hi again. And he eventually invited me on tour. So I've, I've, I've toured with Barry Manilow a few times before and it's you know it's always in a much bigger room than I'm used to playing. It's in these massive arenas with thousands of manalunis, as they call themselves, <laughs> uh, and they're wonderful. They treat me like I'm you know I'm something special because Barry tells them that he likes me, and so that that makes the manalunis the curtalunis as well for for a night. And and a lot of them have followed me uh, on my tours as well. I mean, after playing with Barry Manilow, I always have a huge uh, boost in my in my ticket sales and record sales because of because of his fans they're they're good fans and they like good songs they like they like songs you can sing along with and uh, the guy has had so many hits it makes your head spin i mean you sit there and uh, you know i saw him play quite a few times when i opened for him and i will again this summer and it is just it's awe inspiring how many hits how many great big fat pop song he's had hits with it must be a welcome return to touring as well since the pandemic because i mean you, you mentioned you know you end your living from ticket sales but for, you know for a lot of performers during the pandemic it's been a case of you know i can't do the thing i normally do to earn a living anymore it was a high and dry period the, the pandemic i spent a year and a half not making a living at all i i was uh, it was a little terrifying i i i was thankful i have a wife with a job <laughs> <laughs> thanks honey yeah because i you know i mean People think of me, you know, with my with my pop hits back in the early '90s, that I'm, you know, a big millionaire, you know. But th that doesn't the pipeline doesn't really fill up with that much money and stay full. So I got to go out there. I I still am a working musician. If I don't go on the road. Daddy doesn't make a living and uh, I've got, you know, a daughter to put through college and a mom to take care of. And so it was, it was a little nerve wracking and I tried a few different things. I tried Patreon, you know, I tried to do one of those patronage sites that didn't, that wasn't really for me. And I, I do this live stream show, but I, I realized that, you know, I'm not going to make a living from tips on a live stream show. I love doing the show and I continue to do it just because it's fun, but I need my, sh I need my gigs. I've got to get out there. So, um, please <laughs> please get a jab, please get uh, vaccinated, if only so that I can go out and play music for people. <laughs> 
you mentioned your wife Jodie there just then um, and you said you married quite recently I've always wondered as a singer-songwriter there must be a lot of pressure on you to write a song or at least Mm. sing one on your wedding day oh on the wedding day um you know, I got away with not doing it on the wedding day, just uh, particularly because it was just the two of us and and two of our neighbors. I mean, we we really we we got married out in front of our house. Uh, we got a little dressed up, and the dogs were there. And our two of our best friends lived just across the street. And a judge came over, a friend who's a judge in town. He came over and married us. So there were five people. There wasn't really much need for singing, but I have you know th- there is pressure uh, to you know at least write a song, uh, and so I do have a song from an album of mine a couple of albums back that, that was the title track from my album Hooray for Love. That was a, a song I wrote about falling in love after sort of, you know, the heartbreak of divorce after a long marriage and just sort of being I don't know, emotionally destroyed and then sort of realizing, oh wait, there's life on the other side of this heartbreak. There is love. And uh, a friend had sent an email to me saying, I heard that you and Jody are seeing each other. That's so wonderful. Hooray for love. That's what the the, the email said. And I thought, oh, there's a song. And uh, <laughs> hooray for love has, has a lot of meaning in this house. Curtis, it's been so lovely talking with you. There's so much more we could talk about. I mean, you're... Oh, we could go on all day. Cameos in the TED movies, the bar you used to own, mountain biking, ultimate frisbee, ice skating with Rob Brydon in Geneva. How did that even happen? Oh, oh my God. But time has sadly run away from us. But thank you so much again and best of luck with the new album and tour. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Curtis for being so generous with his time. His new album, This Life, is out on the 25th of February and his latest single, a new version of You're All That Matters To Me, is out now. You can also catch him on tour. As we mentioned in our chat, Curtis has a mini residency at Ronnie Scott's in London at the end of February and then he'll be touring around the UK until April before supporting Barry Manilow on his tour in June. And of course, you can watch Curtis perform songs from his kitchen every Wednesday on his YouTube channel. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Celebrity Catch Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you'd like to support the show, please visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate the cost of a coffee or whatever you'd like. I don't make any money from this podcast, so if you've enjoyed yourself for the past hour, a donation would be greatly appreciated to help with running costs. And please don't keep the podcast to yourself. Do share it with a friend or on social media so that others can discover and enjoy it too. Hit that follow button, leave a nice review. All that stuff massively helps me out and keeps the podcast going. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>